to the Marathon Medic podcast. I'm your host, Amy Bolsh, a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are all about physical activity, exercise and health. And today I'm joined by Professor Ian Needleman. Ian is a professor of periodontology at University College London, and he has a particular interest in oral health and performance in sports. He leads a research programme in oral health and elite sport, and he has been involved in research within professional football and at the London 2012 Olympics. On this episode, we're discussing why good oral health is so important, the relationship between sport and oral health, and how we can reduce the risk of high sugar gels and sports drinks damaging our teeth. So hi Ian, thank you so much for for joining me today. Um, You are a professor of periodontology, hopefully I've said that correctly, you can correct me if if it's wrong. Um, Would you mind just sharing what that is and and what your day-to-day life involves? Thank you so much, Amy. Yeah, so periodontology means I'm a professor of gum health. So I'm a dentist and I spend uh, three days a week as an academic teaching and researching at University College London Eastman Dental Institute. And um, I spend two days a week um, in specialist practice. Um, So very clinical, um, but a lot of uh, research as well. And I guess we'll touch on some of that uh, during, during this chat. Yeah, perfect. And and you have a special interest in oral health and then performance in sport. So how did you how did you get into to that? Because I imagine that's quite a niche area of, of dentistry. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we've been interested for a long time in the broader impacts of oral health on people's lives um, through research on on quality of life and impacts on um, general health. And, and uh, you know, just very recently, for instance, last uh, couple of weeks, um, a new guideline has been published, which, uh, including evidence that we've produced, which is uh, now clearly calling for gum health to be treated in people that have diabetes, because, and, and still, there isn't a great awareness of this. If you have diabetes. Um, you and if you have gum disease, the gum disease can make it much harder to um, stabilise blood sugar. So um, the evidence is now strong enough that it's it's in the in the UK at least it's a a national it's national guidance to do that. So we've been interested in those those broader impacts for a long time, and as somebody that's keen uh, in, in on, on sport. Um, our, our interest, we were starting to ask the question, well, since it affects life quality and um, confidence and other kind of uh, psychological and, 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 and social parameters, it, since it can affect health, what might it do to um, elite athletes? Um, and uh, that led to us running our first study um, 10 years ago. It's great seeing all of the uh, London 2012 legacy uh, discussions. So we had a huge, huge privilege of running a study, one of any four that were allowed to be run at London 2012. And uh, what we did in that was uh, a large survey. So we surveyed um, 300 or so of the athletes who who were attending the polyclinic, which is this uh, amazing state-of-the-art health facility in the the athletes village. We um, uh, looked at their oral health. We measured it using very careful um, measures of of, of, um, things like gum disease and tooth decay and other, other aspects. And 
that that's nothing particularly innovative. Um, a few people had done that before, but we also asked the question to the, of the athletes, tell us what you think your oral health is doing for your um, training and uh, and performance. So we used a, a kind of validated uh, quality of life approach to do that. And what surprised a lot of people was um, that oral health was very poor. So, um, uh, and worse than um, a, a similar population. So that was one element, which is perhaps not, I mean, maybe it surprised a lot of people thinking about these uh, Olympic athletes at their prime, apparently at their prime of their physical uh, condition, but really with very poor oral health. What was perhaps surprising to us and even uh, and to others was that about one in five, 20 percent or so reported a negative impact on their training uh, and performance. And, and again, just stepping back, you know, we, we've we've. We've uh, talked about this data, say data so often that uh, sometimes need to, s- to just step back and, 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 and reflect on it that 20% of those athletes who we sampled, which may not be representative of all of the athletes uh, at London 2012, 20% of them uh, felt that it was having a negative effect. Data are really important. I'm, as well as being a professor of periodontology, I'm a professor of evidence-informed healthcare. So data are really important to me. But um, stories and anecdotes and narratives are also really important. And there, there are so many of them that the athletes told us and, and our research team at the Games. And, and we've we heard many times subsequently in, in more robust research. Uh, I rem- but I remember one particularly, a, an African sprinter who um, who participated at that, that, that study and said that for a year he'd not been able to train properly because of the problems in his mouth. And, and that's really shocking, absolutely shocking to hear. And as I say, we've heard many stories since. So that led on to, you know, that, that was really very interesting. It, it, there were a lot of signals there. The research, it's very difficult to do good research at major competitions. It's fiendishly difficult. It's really stressful. I don't know what my cortisol levels were like, but I certainly had more sleepless nights in getting that study off the ground and, and just keeping it going than anything else we've, we've ever done. Um but you do your best in a major competition, and it's always a set of, of compromises. So we we set about trying to do even more robust research um, in um, in uh, English football, uh, professional football, and then particularly pre Rio, uh, where we had a very well um, selected group of of, um, of uh, elite and uh, of Olympic and professional uh, athletes very carefully conducted. And and what we found was even with really robust research methods, we found exactly the same signals. Poor oral health across the board, not related uh, to demographics. And um, again, common impacts on performance and and, and training. A a really consistent message across the different studies that we've got. And um, we can talk about where we've gone on to from there, if, if you'd like to do so. 
just picking up on a just picking up on a few things you said there when these athletes have said this is impacting their training what kind of complaints are they referring to were there key themes that came out in terms of poor oral health because obviously that can encompass uh, many different pathologies what was the main thing that you were seeing in, in this population so statistically when we um, analyzed it um, pain not surprisingly was the came out as the strongest having the strongest association with these performance impacts and the pain was coming from um, improperly treated or, or undiagnosed or untreated conditions such as um, wisdom teeth and of course um, elite athletes tend to be at the, just about the peak age for wisdom tooth problems there's an infection called pericoronitis which all that means is infection around the crown of of a wisdom tooth particularly if it's not completely through if it's impacted and um, so that's that's a common cause of pain it may be from um, untreated uh, tooth abscesses so some of the pain could be coming from um, untreated infections as a result of deep tooth decay in a tooth or um, or for, from uh, from gum disease so um, as uh, so that had the closest um, association Interestingly, we also found association with self-reported pain and sensitivity, so less severe pain, um, what people would maybe talk about as sensitivity, but which is maybe more ongoing, more chronic, as opposed to those very uh, strong but occasional pains, which may be more acute. So even that seemed to have an influence on training and performance. And, And we've We've been trying more recently and other groups as well to try and explore the mechanisms of how um, oral health conditions can affect training and performance, because potentially this is obviously important for athletes, elite athletes, but also for the general population. And I, I suppose one of the, the obvious thoughts going through my mind is, have you have you looked into why this is the case? Is it the is it that physical activity and exercise is impacting upon oral health or is it the behaviours maybe that these athletes um, have that are impacting on on this poor oral health? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, I'm very, I enjoyed listening to your podcast with Rob um, Galloway, I think it is, um, because so much of what he was saying about injury risk um, with with marathon running, I think is, is probably relevant here. So overall, clearly, physical activity and sport is good. I think it's so important to keep promoting that message. Also, it will be a relationship that the more you do, the more you are likely to be exposed to to things which put you at greater risk of problems. And they may be um, muscular skeletal injuries, but they may also be um, oral health conditions. And I think the analogy is really important because uh, it's possible to mitigate uh, and to prevent to a great extent in, in, in both elements. So how, how could more sport be problematic for oral health? Well, one of the key things, of course, is nutrition. So um, the use of sugars to support training, particularly, and I, I'm not... Uh, we used to talk about carbohydrates, but I think we need to be a bit more specific and talk about sugars. Sugars are a, you know, a key element of, of tooth decay. 
So what we know about sugars is it's the frequency that they're taken that is the strongest predictor of, of tooth decay. And for many athletes, particularly for endurance athletes, taking sugars frequently during periods of training is just something that has to be done to support that training or to support that performance. So you could see how the risk will increase depending on the kind of the dose, how much how much training, uh, how much competition that you're doing. But again, we can talk about how, how that, that can be mitigated and, and reduced. And, and Amy, as you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, the effects of um, particularly um, high flow activities where there's a lot of airflow through the mouth and endurance sport on saliva, both the amount of saliva and also the particular characteristics or properties of saliva. Um, so there has been some thought that um, intensive physical activity affects the ability of saliva to protect against certain infections, bacterial or viral, which may be part of the, the cause of respiratory tract infections. And I'm thinking about particularly um, an immunoglobulin, an antibody, uh, salivary IgA. We've looked at that. In fact, one of the, our PhD students has carried out a systematic review. And when we look at all of the evidence, it's really very unclear whether these effects are real. Um, but the frustrating thing when you look at the data are the, uh, is this, that there's so much variation in how the data are collected, in how the studies are done, it becomes very difficult to bring put together a coherent message about what the overall story is. And that's the, cl the classic a problem of doing a so-called systematic review. So from our research, we were not saying that training um, and particularly sort of endurance events does not affect saliva flow and does not affect uh, saliva protection, but it's um, there is insufficient evidence at the moment to make that uh, case very strongly. So, um, and we, we certainly have made recommendations on, on how that research could be done to answer that question. So, uh, we really don't know whether saliva is contributing or lack of saliva or the changes in its protection are contributing. And we really don't know whether uh, reductions in the um, short-term reductions in the way the body defends itself against infections, bacterial or viral, um, opens up windows of opportunity for infections. It's all very plausible. Um, so we've got very clear evidence for nutrition. And as you say, in terms of behaviours, there's very clear opportunities for behaviours to be a problem. When we, um, in, our, in our studies, when we ask elite athletes, Olympic athletes particularly, access to dentists, it starts to become a problem. Um, in the UK and in many countries, athletes, uh, it's their responsibility to find a dentist and most athletes will therefore have to pay for their own dental care. And we know uh, that accessing dentists at the best of times can be difficult if you are not registered and you don't go to see the same dentist on a regular basis. And of course, the COVID pandemic has made that more difficult. 
Um, but the cost is is a barrier um, for most elite athletes. Uh, the income is is very low, uh, and uh, having to pay for dental care, even if it's preventive dental care rather than actually treatment, is is a real barrier. So certainly there are behavioural elements as well. We've spoken a lot about elite athletes, and I think often in sports medicine, a lot of the research is conducted on competition level athletes. Have we got similar findings in the general population? So kind of amateur athletes, maybe the the person that's just going running a few times a week. Are we seeing the same sort of trends? Because these individuals can still be consuming quite high volumes of sports drinks, for example. And and as you mentioned, even for the general population, um, it's still very hard to access NHS um, dentistry or even even private at the moment as well. Yes, the we haven't conducted um, studies uh, outside of elite professional sport, but there are studies. And what's extremely worrying, as you point out, is that there is a very high use of uh, inverted commas sports drinks, particularly in um, in uh, younger uh, people, whether they are participating in sport or whether they're not participating in sport. And those are associated with tooth decay and another condition which we haven't really talked about yet, which is erosion or erosive tooth wear, where the surface enamel of the teeth is eroded by the acidic drinks or or foods. And it's not nothing to do with the bacteria, but it's all to do with the um, acidity of the uh, of the of the drinks and intakes and certainly there's actually better evidence for a relationship between those sports drinks and erosion in non uh, elite sport groups than there is in elite sports so yeah we would be surprised if there wasn't a similar relationship again depending on how much of these things are used but also coming back to what you were saying about the health behaviors so if people are not accessing de- uh, dentistry and it's not just a question of accessing dentistry but also not getting the benefits of the preventive advice then we would expect in the general population these drinks and and, uh, and sports supplements to be associated with increased uh, oral problems. We've touched on the sports drinks and, and gels as well are another key thing where people are kind of basically drinking drinking sugar and bathing their mouths in, in very processed sugary content. So for the everyday runner or the elite runner who who does actually need these supplements because you're a runner yourself on these long runs, we definitely need to be taking on sugars. Um, unfortunately, we can't just stop and have a have a normal, healthy, balanced meal. But what can we do if, if, if we're requiring these to try and prevent all of the things that you've mentioned in terms of tooth decay and erosion happening? Are there any nuggets of information you can give and recommend to, to users of these sports drinks? Yeah, Amy, that's a great question because exactly right. You have to use them. And uh, our advice is is, um, follow your sport nutritionist if you're an elite athlete. Uh, But if you're not, you you will still need to use these these high sugar products. So accept that. And really, our advice is own that risk and manage that risk. And the way to do that is... If you uh, have a dentist or if uh, even if you don't, find a dentist, but develop a relationship with that dentist or, or dentist and or hygienist. Think of them as your coach. 
uh, think of the, explain to them that you do um, participate in sport, that you do use these things. It's not a question of anybody wagging their finger and saying you shouldn't because you have to use them, but asking for advice on what you can do. And there are lots of there are lots of sim- simple things that you can do. If you're a cyclist or you're a track athlete or you can adapt this um, in whatever field you, 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 you're doing your sport, then a kind of two bottle strategy is quite useful. So if you're using a gel or if you're using a, um, a, a, a sports drink, then immediately uh, rinse out with water. Yeah, so that, that would be really helpful. If you are using these products a lot, then your risk of decay is increased. So accept that high risk and what your dentist um, will uh, suggest to you is to use a high fluoride toothpaste and there's really good evidence. There's national guidance uh, guidelines about using these things Um, and you use that uh, that high fluoride toothpaste twice a day. The only thing is you can't get them from pharmacies. You have to get it on prescription or to purchase it from a dentist. And that will also help to strengthen the enamel and reduce how much is uh, dissolved during those periods when you are using uh, the uh, the sugars. Another approach, of course, is for rehydration. You don't need to, of course, the sports scientists will tell you, you don't need to use uh, rehydration uh, drinks. Water and milk are fantastic and um, uh, and again, very protective. So simple things. Uh, see a dentist because of your risk twice uh, twice a year. Talk to them and own that risk and explain your risk and get the advice. Um, and the advice might also be a kind of think of it as a as a strength and conditioning in oral health S and C. So the and it may be the use of the fluoride rinses. It may be, for instance, in the technique about toothbrushing. Those of us that have that that, that visit uh, physios know just how important technique is with the S and C. Even if you're just uh, doing that through YouTube videos. Uh, technique is really important and it's the same thing with things like toothbrushing get the technique right preferably get some coaching on how to do that get some coaching on how to clean between your teeth because yeah otherwise you're just missing so much and the inflammation from between the teeth could be part of the the problem um, of having a negative impact on on your your well-being and and your performance so there's some really simple things with very good evidence behind them that work. And really, most of those things are very low cost. You've mentioned a few things there in terms of um, so high fluoride toothpaste, fluoride washes and, and cleaning in between the teeth. I think there can be a little bit of confusion about the order in which we do that. So as far as I'm aware, we should floss first and then brush teeth and maybe use rinses at a different time so that we, we gain the benefits of the high fluoride toothpaste uh, without just washing it out straight away. Is that correct, or is there another way that we should be doing this? Amy, that's that's, that's really impressive. Uh, exactly right. So again, it's a bit like S and C. It's also a question of getting the right sequence. So I, I completely agree with you. Um, after so uh, clean between your teeth, and I've mentioned the little brushes to go between the teeth because they're actually better than the stringy stuff, which most people think of as floss. Do that first, then the tooth brushing, then uh, and the tooth brushing with the uh, the fluoride. 
then spit out, but don't rinse out. Because if you rinse, rinse with water, which most people do, of course, you rinse away the fluoride. And the way fluoride works is by persisting and staying around your teeth for a few minutes, if not a few hours afterwards, and, and giving you that extra protection. So yeah, the sequence is really important. Perfect. Obviously, it's much easier to, to recite the sequence than to necessarily do it day after day, but obviously it's useful useful to know. Um, and I, I think most of us are aware of the foods that are damaging to our teeth, but um, are there any foods that are actually beneficial to our teeth? I think I may have read that nitrates can be quite helpful for our tooth health, but I'm not sure if that's correct. And, and are there any other foods that you'd recommend for oral health? I think we, we, we tend to sound very much like sport nutritionists in terms of promoting a food first approach. So whole foods rather than uh, ultra processed foods. And that's really important because ultra processed foods tend to have a lot of sugar uh, and also a lot of um, unfavorable fats. So in general, for, for oral health, we promote exactly the same Mediterranean type diet good range of uh, vegetables particularly nuts seeds all all those kinds of things where they can be important is by reducing the amount of inflammation in our bodies that can also help reduce the amount of inflammation in our mouths so the two things can be very very closely linked and most people tend to think of the next thing we're going to talk about which is the sugars uh, in relation to oral health which again important and there is some evidence that um, dairy products particularly um, uh, cheeses can be helpful partly by uh, changing the acidity in our mouths um, and, and helping to rebalance our mouths, getting that, that ecosystem, that environment away from an environment which is favouring tooth decay and erosion of the teeth to one which is more stable. That's really helpful. And I love cheese. So <laughs> that's, that's always good to hear, isn't it? It's not, it's not often that cheese is, is considered good for any parts of our health. Um, I think we've spoken, you know, a, f- a fair amount about the impact of uh, oral health on on sports but I guess if we're looking at a bigger picture actually our, our general health uh, should hopefully take priority over our sports performance uh, and you kind of touched on it there with the link between inflammation and, and oral health and the rest of our our health in terms of our kind of entire body what is the link between oral health and our overall health and, and what's the evidence pointing towards in, in terms of those that close relationship Okay, so again, it's a, it's a really nice question. It's a it's a huge developing area, so we do have very strong evidence now about the links between um, inflammation in the mouth and diabetes, and uh, that that's to say it, at, at the point where it's now national guidance. There is um, good evidence about the association between inflammation in the mouth and risk of heart disease and emerging evidence about many other conditions, increasing the risk of uh, neurodegenerative uh, diseases, cognitive diseases, cancer, uh, chronic kidney disease. So really many conditions. And underlying those are probably uh, inflammation because the amount of inflammation in the mouth in somebody that has moderate gum disease would be surprising to many people. If you imagine uh, an ulcer, the size of the palm of your hand, that would be the typical amount of ulceration within the gum that you would have if you had moderate to severe gum disease. And of course, if you asked anybody, 
if they had an ulcer that size on their skin where they could see it, whether they felt that would affect their health, they would feel, of course, it, it would. But hidden away in the mouth, there's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of forgotten. So the inflammation route is certainly one of the most researched. What is um, also coming out, and, and, and some of our research is also pointing towards this, is this bacterial or microbiological, but most of us are focusing on bacterial rather than the broader uh, viruses and, 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 and fungi at the moment. But um, of course, we're all getting familiar with the microbiome, the gut microbiome in particular. And we've been looking at the oral microbiome as well as the gut microbiome and finding differences between athletes and non-athletes and even within athletes between different types of sports. Why this might be important is this, that um, the health of the mouth, the, uh, the stability of the mouth, um, is very much determined by the microbiome. So we think of the bacteria as damaging. In fact, we've co-evolved for so many millions of years. That's not the case. We need the bacteria in, the, in our mouths to, uh, to keep us healthy. And what's interesting is to look at the relationship of those bacteria and also gut health. So it may well be that the bacteria in our mouth are also determinants of the gut bacteria and our uh, well-being. There's a very specific example of this, and it comes back to you asked about beetroot. So beetroot um, is really important in our diet as well as leafy vegetables because of the nitrates that are in the uh, beetroot and, and, and leafy vegetables. And why nitrates are important is that they become metabolized into nitrites and eventually nitric acid. And nitric acid is a very powerful um, agent which opens our blood vessels and helps us to control our blood pressure. And what's become very clear over the last uh, 10 to 15 years is that that process of the nitrates in the diet being turned into nitric oxide starts in the mouth. We need the bacteria in our mouth to start that process off. So if we kill off those bacteria, for instance, using certain uh, mouthwashes, mouth rinses, we may lose some of that, that benefits of controlling our blood pressure. And there is now very convincing evidence that indeed that's exactly what happens. So if you test that in a, in a kind of research environment, you can demonstrate that blood pressure is less well controlled if you kill off those bacteria. And you can also show that the bacteria that are killed off, it's not, it's not random, are the ones which are, which are linked in with that process. So there we have a very clear example and there are other examples of bacteria in the mouth, which have, for instance, anti-inflammatory effects in the gut, which might also help to protect gut health. That's at an early stage. So the understanding, I think there's an awful lot that's going on in understanding gut health and the gut microbiome. And that's, I think that's why there's such a big interest in probiotics, for instance. What's at a much earlier stage is how the other microbiomes, including the mouth and possibly other microbiomes as well, uh, communicate and link in and how this, rather than perhaps compartmentalizing into these different microbiomes, how overall our microbiomes work together to support our health. I hope that's not too long and, uh, and uh, complex a, a description. 
that's that's really interesting and I I can imagine in 10 years time that's going to be a huge topic that we hopefully know a lot more about what should we be looking at in terms of buying mouthwashes because you mentioned about killing off bacteria and I think it's quite difficult when you go and you see all these things that are advertised in terms of you know all these mouthwashes and for someone that isn't aware of, of oral health for the general consumer what should we be looking for or what shouldn't we be looking for when we're making these purchases so we, we've talked about people who have a, a high risk of tooth decay and for them using f- uh, fluoride rinses as you very carefully said at a different time in the day from toothbrushing is really helpful so that's not killing the bacteria it's strengthening the uh, tooth enamel against uh, tooth decay what most people buy mouthwashes for are um, the antiseptics the antimicrobials and there is no great evidence that that's important for most people. Now, if my words sound very carefully chosen, they, they are. Because there are times if you have, for instance, a, uh, a very sore mouth, you have a, a very sore infection in your mouth, you've had some treatment and you can't clean, then for short periods of time, it's undoubtedly a good idea to use a, an antiseptic mouth rinse but to use it for as short a time as possible because it will uh, kill off all of these bacteria in quite an unselective way. So use it a bit like a Band-Aid in some ways. Ooh, that's, a, that's a product. But use it like a, a sticky plaster. Use it to treat something, but we wouldn't recommend routinely using it in, in the long term for most people. That's really helpful. I think we're just programmed as society to think bacteria is bad and and really we need to be thinking of it in a much more nuanced and and careful way. I think that's absolutely right. We need to figure out how we can best nurture a healthy healthy environment in our mouths and and in our gut and with with gut certainly nutrition seems to be a really important way of having a very varied diet um having fiber so there's a lot of there's a lot that's been characterized um perhaps we've not been we're just a little bit behind that in in with the mouth and you're right the message tends to be clean away and get rid of as much of the bacteria as possible and let, there's a risk of confusion here because people might think, okay, well, I'll stop brushing my teeth then. That's not a good thing to do. Or I'll stop cleaning between my teeth. By keeping the amount of bacteria down to a low level, and that level, that level actually varies from one person to another, that will promote the good bacteria. So you'll have lots of bacteria in your mouth, millions and millions and millions of bugs, um, by doing that, that good oral hygiene, you'll be a bit like a farmer cultivating a really good, um, a really good field. So you'll have the right healthy bacteria in that way. If you're not cleaning well, what will happen is you'll get an overgrowth of the ones which are tending to cause the problems. So it's it's how we manage that best. And toothbrushing and cleaning between the teeth is a really primitive way of doing it. It's quite difficult to do. Many people find it, most people find it incredibly tedious and boring. So there are probably better ways of doing it, but we don't yet have those better ways. You've made it sound like there might be in the future, which would be, uh, which would be quite exciting because I think as you, as you said, it's, it's tedious. And I think the problem I find is that we brush our teeth at kind of the worst times of the day, really. It's when we're rushing out the door to get to work 
or when we're really tired at the end of the day trying to get to bed but just that information that you shared about the key things that we need to do to try and control the levels of bacteria in the mouth is hopefully really helpful to everyone listening Uh, no i think that that's absolutely right and we we did a study in two olympic teams and a professional rugby team to try and try and work out what would be a behavior change intervention that would work for them the way we did that was to get together athletes and uh, sport teams to help us devise the research kind of co-production of this and what came out of that was that for behavior change oral health was not a a good topic to discuss it wasn't really uh, number one the the two things which came out as the prime motivators were a wish to avoid inflammation in the mouth and therefore in the rest of the body so very keen to avoid that and secondly perhaps not surprisingly thinking about the elite athletes and the age group appearance so we designed the behavior change intervention focusing on motivation on both of those elements, how to, uh, to reduce or minimize inflammation and also improving um, or maintaining appearance. And we had really good uptake. It was amazing. Um, three visits. We had um, over 95% of the athletes continuing the, the study over those three visits. Um, so we had very good what the health psychologists would call adherence in other words, people stuck with it, despite the fact it is a bit tedious and boring. And um, we also had some very nice uh, reductions in self, um, self-rated self performance impacts. So they also rate, the athletes rated that the impacts of their oral health on their training and performance reduced. So what, what we got out of that was, you know, think very carefully about your target group and what might motivate them because behavior change is, for all of us is difficult. And as dentists, where we might be focused on dental or oral health, that may not be what really is going to motivate most people. And I think that's particularly relevant uh, in, in this discussion. I imagine that's true a, a lot across a lot of healthcare as well. I definitely find if I'm trying to encourage people to wear more sunscreen, for example, it's much easier to get buy-in if you're talking about appearance rather than, for example, the risk of skin cancer 10, 20 years down down the line. So obviously there's <laughs> that, that's probably a theme across many aspects of health. Um, just touching back onto your kind of work with elite athletes, um, you were a member of the International Olympic Committee uh, and you were putting in strategies to protect the oral health of athletes during the Olympics. So how does how does it differ in terms of the, the health care you're providing at that big uh, organisational level for an event like the Olympics? What kind of things are you putting in place for events like that? In, I'm not um, a member of the International Olympic Committee. Um, our research group, we're part of the UK um, International Olympic Committee uh, UK Research Centre, and I have been inv- and I have been involved with the IOC Research Conference as part of the Scientific Committee. Um, so, we, and, and most closely, we've worked with um, the British Olympic Association and helped them to put together a an oral health strategy. And that has particularly focused on advice. It's particularly focused on encouraging athletes to seek dental care. And it's particularly focused on giving that, that messaging about information about how oral health can affect uh, performance. With individual teams, 
Olympic and uh, professional teams, then we have been able to go a little bit further. But again, it's it's um, what we've what we've tried to do is recognise we're just dentists, and what I mean by that is we're not athletes, we are not performance directors or coaches, and we're not sports nutritionists. So we've very much approached this as how can we collaborate and co-produce this? So uh, an example of that, for instance, is whenever we do the research, we always go to athlete training centres. We never ask the athletes to come to us um, so that um, it, it, it feels much more of a, a collaboration. And in those settings, there is a lot more interest in putting together oral health strategies. However, Amy, as I'm sure you have experienced, there's huge competition for bandwidth in sports medicine and athletes' health and well-being. Uh, oral health is just one of many competing areas. Um, clearly, COVID over the last uh, couple of years has been one of the most dominant factors um, in certain sports, concussion, in most sports, mental health. So we recognize that we are in many ways competing for interest because everybody has limited capacity to take on new things. But I think it's been very encouraging, the interest that's there um, within Olympic sport. And certainly the International Olympic Committee have, have been very supportive of work that we've done, as well as the British Olympic Association and, and, and various other organizations. We're making progress. And it's really a question of, of also just being there and being patient and also trying to produce uh, newer and, and better research to help support um, the strategies um, and, and, and the best programs. Great. That, that's really that's really interesting. And, and as you said earlier, I think because it's not visible, it, I think guess to the athletes themselves, it might not seem as important in terms of the grand scheme of their performance if, if they can't see the the damage that's going on inside their mouth. So that education must be must be so vital. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and uh, sharing all of that information. It's definitely going to make me rethink some of my um, oral health habits, that's for sure. Are there any final comments that you wanted to leave the listeners with? Um, I'm always interested to hear from people if they have experiences um, that uh, they, they, they'd want to share. Um, so you can um, email me at, uh, UC at University College London uh, on i.needleman at ucl.ac.uk. Um, I have a Twitter feed as well. We also have a uh, Twitter feed for our, our group, which is um, Oral Health Sport. Um, if you if you if you Google us, I'm sure you'll find that information. But do get in touch if you've got ideas, if you've um, uh, if you've had particularly good experiences, or you've got some suggestions on how to improve the situation. Just let us know. We'd be very happy to to hear about it and and to work with you. Great, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you very much indeed. Many thanks to Professor Ian Needleman for joining me on this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Ian, then you can find him on Twitter by searching Ian Needleman. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it and give it a rating. And do get in touch if there's topics or guests who you'd like to see on a future episode. If you'd like to hear more from me, then head to marathonmedic.com, where you'll find more podcast episodes, blog posts and coaching information. You can also find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic. Thanks so much for listening. 